starting in verse 16. The 11 disciples traveled to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had directed them. When they saw him, they worshiped, but some doubted. Jesus came near and said to them, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, sir. Well, we are well into the second half of this series, The Gospel of Jesus. We spent the first half talking about the things that Jesus did, and we went over his miracles and his ministry, and that culminated in the events that surrounded Easter, and then now we've, we're really in deeply into the part where we go back and we say, well, okay, what did, we, we've covered what he did, what did the Son of God say? And we've taken up a lot of Jesus' longer teachings, or perhaps his most well-known teachings, and this may be one of the most well-known. Whenever you, you come to a passage like this, there is a temptation to look at it and say, well, everybody knows the Great Commission. Everybody knows Matthew 28. It's on the, it's on the, the, the tip of the tongue of most Christians, right up there with John 3.16. What can we do to add to that? Okay, so we've got to be novel. We've got to be clever. We've got to come at it from a really fun angle. And no, I think Matthew 28 is just so abundantly clear. We're going to spend the vast majority of our time this morning reminding ourselves of what Jesus has called us to do. So this is going to be a lot of just reminders today. This is, this is a passage that really highlights the, the mission of the church, and I want, to, I want to keep that word out in front most of the morning here, the mission. So um, many of you have probably heard of the phrase mission drift. Mission Drift is this idea that as an organization or as an institution, you, you, you begin with a clear goal in mind. This is what we are setting out to do. And Mission Drift is something that usually occurs over long periods of time where other things begin to influence how you operate. Other concerns begin to pile up. And over a, a number of one-degree course corrections, over time, you're just rather different. Now, this doesn't always have to be bad, actually. You could, you could start out in 1994 in Seattle, Washington, shipping books around the world as if that's a novel idea. And then today, your mission has drifted enough that you're Amazon and you own half the world, apparently. So I don't think that Jeff Bezos had in mind in 1994 what he has in mind today. His mission has drifted. Some would say for the better, others would say for the worse. Another place where this is really apparent, and I think really easily seen, because that's, so we've, we've had a, a couple of decades now of, of Amazon. Let's go longer than that, a couple hundred years. Famously, the Ivy League schools, those, those elite institutions in the New England area, have changed over time. Um, there are things that have affected these changes, but if you, if you think of the eight schools, many are surprised to know there's eight Ivy League schools. Six of them were founded with intentionally and overtly Christian missions, such as training pastors, or training missionaries, or working to, to build up theological libraries in support of local clergy. 
Six of the eight were founded with that idea in mind. Backed by denominations, by the Congregationalist world or the Baptist world or the Presbyterian world, these schools were founded to support those missions. In fact, if you can throw out this first seal right there. So this is the seal of Harvard University. Harvard, first uh, major university um, of higher learning in, in the United States, founded in 1636. So I don't know if you've brushed up on your Latin lately, but on the white, on the white ring inside, it says, Cristo et Ecclesia. In their seal, Harvard says they are for Christ and church. That's why they exist. That's still their seal today. Does it sound like the Harvard you know? In some of their charter documents, as they're putting together this, this organization, their goal to found Harvard University was to train ministers to preach the gospel. That's what they set out to do. This is, what, this is a line from their charter documents. Their goal was to advance learning and perpetuate it to posterity, dreading to leave an illiterate ministry to the churches when our present ministers shall lie in the dust. In other words, why do we start Harvard University? Because these good preachers are about to die and we need to train the young ones to come up and replace them. That's why we're starting Harvard University. It didn't last very long. And after a while, they, the Harvard began to, to suffer the, I say suffer, you can see where I land. They, they began to suffer the influence of particularly European theology on, on, a, on a very specific side of it. And, and they began to change. Their, their mission began to drift. So much so that in 1701, 10 ministers, all of whom were Harvard graduates, said, this is enough. We need to get back to what we are designed to do. We need to go and train ministers. So what did they do? They founded Yale University. And that's what Yale was designed to do. And the, the domino effect just goes from there. Yale's seal right there. Lux et veritas, light and truth. That's what, that's what they were about, light and truth. And you see that very scripture-looking book in the middle that says light and truth in Hebrew. This is what we're about. Still they're sealed today. Does that remind you of Yale University? And it's not as though they've jettisoned their divinity departments. They, they still have divinity departments. But as, as they, they began to engage in the needs that a university ought to meet, well, we need to have a science department and a mathematics department and a literature department. We need to add and add and add. And over time, you add enough, the mission drifts. Other things require funding. Other things require attention. Other things get a say at the table. And the mission just drifts. And the, the Yale of 1701 and the Yale of 2021 resemble almost nothing of one another in terms of their mission. So the culture can have a profound effect on one's mission. Other things that can affect the mission, finances, money. Two more schools, I don't have a seal for them, but Brown in Rhode Island, their motto is, in God we hope. In God we hope. Dartmouth in New Hampshire, their motto is, a voice of one crying in the wilderness. And they were originally founded to train men and women to go and minister to Native American peoples and to present the gospel to this largely unexplored continent. A voice of one crying in the wilderness, the famous words attributed to the, the person of John the Baptist as the precursor to Christ. That's what Dartmouth is established to do. But finances can just shift the mission. And for both of these schools, Brown University and Dartmouth, they, 
at some point became aware of the fact that Andrew Carnegie was a very generous man and his foundation would give millions to higher education should you meet his requirements. And one of his stipulations was that he would not distribute funds to any sectarian institution. In other words, he would not distribute funds to someone who has such a very narrow mission that we could consider them a sect like a ministry training school. And so rather than stay the course, we need the money. And so Brown and Dartmouth both formally broke ties with their denominations in order to receive the money from the Carnegie Foundation. Again, you could say, well, now we have these elite institutions and they do wonderful things and they produce presidents and, the, and all this wonderful stuff and incredible research. Their, their mission should have changed, perhaps. I really i am not that interested in the school. But when we come to a text like Matthew 28, Harvard, Yale, Brown, Dartmouth, and others, their mission has changed in just a few hundred years. The church was founded 2,000 years ago. I think our mission is susceptible to drift as well. But I think even before we can criticize or, or question or, or pick apart whether or not our mission has drifted, we have to establish, do we, are we clear? Are, are you and I clear on what it is? I see Scott Freeman, Val Freeman, I know them very well. Are you clear on what the mission is? Do we know what the mission of the church is? Because I read something like Matthew 28, and again, I think it's rather clear. It's, the mission is to make disciples. And how do you do that? You do that by baptizing people into the baptismal life. And, and what does that baptismal life look like? It looks like obeying Jesus' commands. Isn't that the mission? Isn't that the mission of the church? Because you could, and many do, say, I, I wonder if the mission is, is more practical than that. I wonder if the mission is, if we stay in Matthew, backing it all the way up to chapter 5, is to be salt and light and to work in a world that desperately needs people to care for it. I wonder if the mission is to be the hands and the feet of Jesus, to serve those who need to be I wonder if the mission is to look at all the ills of society and say we have redeemed people here who are kind people and godly people and they can go and serve. Shouldn't that be the mission of the church? In part. In part. And this is where I think we need to get first order mission and its implications correct. So I, what I want to do is I just want to spend a little bit of time looking at two examples in the Old Testament that, that demonstrate the pattern that God has used since literally the beginning of time to interject his mission into the world. His mission. In Genesis 1, uh, starting in verse 28, this is the, the original story of how humanity comes to be it says, so God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. So we have humanity has been created. They have been created, both male and female, in the image of God. And this is going to uh, give the occasion for that first mission, the original mission. And then God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. Rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that crawls on the earth. That's the original mission. 
So what, what were Adam and Eve designed to do? What were they tasked with? They were tasked with make babies. Fill this place up with more babies. And it's not just babies for the sake of babies, but it's with image bearers. They were made, male and female, in the image of God. Fill this place with more image bearers. And then what? You see everything else I've made? Subdue it. Take care of it. Steward it on my behalf. One of the resounding themes through Scripture is that God never loses one modicum of his authority as he gives us his authority. It's this most bizarre thing. He reigns supreme, and he tasks us with administering his authority on his behalf. Many theologians will describe humanity as God's under-governors, as those tasked with submitting to a higher authority, yet ruling over that which we've been tasked to rule. So God's people are really tasked, even in the garden, with stewarding God's rule on earth. Okay, so now, now we know that doesn't, go, that doesn't go very well at all. We, chapter one, by chapter three, we're off the rails, and then things just go crazy. And we'll come back to that, because that's a big part of the gospel. But just notice the pattern. God has authority. He gives his authority to those to rule on his behalf. Okay? That's his original mission. Now let's talk about, as, as I said, Genesis 3 takes place, and then we've got the plan of redemption to, to begin. But his redemptive mission can be seen quite clearly in a very fascinating way further down in a big prophetic book, the book of Daniel. So Daniel 7, a famous passage um, that's, that is now clearly seen as a messianic passage about Christ. Daniel 7, verse 13, this is um, just a beautiful chapter of God's supremacy over all things. And so the, the prophet Daniel says, I continued watching in the night visions, and suddenly one like a son of man, with a name that Jesus will then take on himself very clearly, one like a son of man was coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days, a beautiful name for God, and was escorted before him. He, the son of man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom so that those of every people, nation, and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. Now, remember what you remember about that famous Matthew 28 passage. Make disciples of all nations. It's beginning here. The one like a son of man is given authority over every people, nation, and language, that they will come and serve him. And it will not pass away. Now this tells us something about God's plan of redemption through this son of man character. But if you skip down a few verses, you see what the son of man in turn does with those who follow him and serve him. Verse 27. The kingdom, dominion, and greatness of the kingdoms under all of heaven will be given to the people. The holy ones of the most high. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all rulers will serve and obey him. Do you notice this beautiful interplay of the authority of the Ancient of Days, and then the authority given to the Son of Man, and then now the authority shared with his holy servants? There's a clear pattern here. And, and I didn't have time, because last time I was told I went long, so I didn't have time to go through the rest of the Old Testament, but it's this resounding pattern of the authority of God being demonstrated through those who will enact his authority and steward his authority on earth. God's people 
truly are tasked with stewarding God's rule on earth. So if God has an original mission in Genesis 1, and we see this mission of redemption in Daniel 7, well, in Matthew 28, you have his renewed mission. And you hear echoes of the previous missions rippling through, almost culminating here. Jesus came near and said to them, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, I should stop there for just a second. Go is not actually a command. It's an assumption that as you are going, as you are going, it's parsable, as you're going about your life, as Aaron is going about his life, make disciples. That's the command. Make disciples, not go. Assumes you're going. Go and make disciples of all nations. Well, that sounds very Daniel 7. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe everything I've commanded you. Now, one quick aside. This is a very famous passage. And the more famous the passage is, the more likely it is to be summarized. And the more likely, and the more you summarize it, the more likely you are to truncate it. And once you start to take away all the little bits and pieces, it ceases to lose its meaning. So all that to say, one thing that I notice whenever we rattle off the Great Commission, make disciples, baptize, and teach them. The teach them is not teach them about Jesus. It's not Bible stories. It's teach them to obey what he has commanded. That is discipleship. Discipleship is not information, it's obedience. And it's the baptismal life where you've died to yourself and now you live by the power of the Spirit. So just anytime you rattle off the Great Commission, remember, it's teach them to obey all that Christ has commanded. But again, God's people are tasked with stewarding his rule. Remember the authority in Daniel 7 given to the Son of Man by the Ancient of Days? All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Very Daniel 7. And then he gives their authority, his authority to them. Daniel 7 tells us that this one like a son of man is going to have servants of all nations. And Jesus says in Matthew 28, I have all the authority. You go make servants of all nations on my behalf. Make disciples by taking the gospel out to all people, to all nations. And I should pause here just to make sure we are clear on what that gospel is. I don't want to assume most of us in here, I think, have come to accept this gospel. But let's be clear on what it is. You could, you could describe the gospel as Jesus died to save you from your sins. That is, a, that is a summary statement of the gospel. It's rather incomplete, but it's a summary statement of the gospel. Good starting point. Can I just give you like a, a three-minute expanded version of that that I think cuts to the quick a little more and involves all these big steps? So in the garden, we have the first mission. You are to be fruitful and multiply. Make babies, make more image bearers, fill the earth with people that bear my image, rule on my behalf, and our creation is going to be beautiful and sublime. Genesis 3, it doesn't go well. They don't follow the Lord in obedience, and everything comes apart. But then, in Genesis 12, God calls a man named Abram, and he said, you represent me to everybody. You represent me to everyone. I'm going to change your name. You're going to be the father of many. I'm going to bless you with this threefold blessing. You're going to have a beautiful land to live in. You're going to have descendants you can't even count. And your name will be revered throughout history. And then in Galatians 4, Paul tells us, and there is one descendant that, is, that reigns supreme over all of them. Abram 
represents God to the land of Canaan, to Egypt, but in the end, it is insufficient. And he creates this nation, the children of Jacob, and he changes Jacob's name to Israel and says, Israel, you are going to be my chosen people to represent me to a broken world. You are going to steward my rule. You are going to live as if you are living under me. And he does this by sending them into captivity and preparing them to come out. He gives them the law at Sinai. He says, if you will follow this, this represents my character. Demonstrate my sovereignty everywhere. They do a very poor job of that. Later on, they ask for a king. King Saul is a bust. But David comes along, and he is this beautiful, preeminent king. He is the king after God's own heart. He is to lead the people toward God and to, to, to stand as a representative of God in the nation of Israel. And it doesn't quite go well. You go into exile, this, that, and the other. Jesus shows up. Jesus is, in your New Testament, described as the second Adam, the true representative. Jesus is, in your New Testament, described as the true seed of Abraham. In your New Testament, Jesus is described as the true Israel, the perfect representative of the Father to a broken world in desperate need to see his character and his kindness and his goodness. And he is described as the real son of David, the king. And when you wrap all of those separate identities up, and by the way, he's Daniel 7 too. He is the one like the son of man. You, you tangle all of those identities together, you get the Messiah. That's the gospel. You might think I stopped short. That's the gospel. The good news, according to the New Testament, is that Jesus is Israel's Messiah. God has come in the flesh. That's the good news. Okay, well, what do we do with that good news? Well, you need to know that that Messiah died to atone for your sins. And God raised him to life to affirm that, to testify that, to, to make it acceptable before all that he is both God and man, and that God has accepted his sacrifice. Okay? So the gospel seems to be getting better. Yes, what are the implications of that gospel? Well, if you accept it, then you will have life eternal with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. If you reject it, we'll get to that in a minute. That's the gospel. So what Brandon does is he takes this gospel to that campus, and he presents it. He says, do you believe that this is Israel's Messiah? That this is the one God has, has sent as his own representative, who is in fact God himself as well. But that gets complicated. Those are, those are second meeting conversations. And do you believe this? And if so, will you swear your allegiance to him? Well, what does that look like? It looks like going there and dying to yourself and committing to live a resurrected life. That's it? Yeah, how do you live that resurrected life? You obey Jesus. That's the mission of the church. So why, well, like I said, there are, there are alternative options that, that many want to present, such as feeding the poor, or caring for the ills of society, or doing this or doing that, or being the hands and feet of Jesus. Why is that not the mission, but this is the mission? Why is this the mission? Because... It doesn't matter how many times you smooth band-aids over society's ills. Those problems come back, and they're not eternal. I'm not saying they're insignificant. They're just of a second order. This, Matthew 28, is the mission because of two reasons. 
One, there is something worse than death. When we cease to understand this and believe this and preach this and teach this in our homes and, and help our kids understand this, when we cease to believe this, the mission drifts. But there is something worse than death. Matthew 10, verse 26 says, this is Jesus. Therefore, don't be afraid of them, though the antagonists, since there's nothing covered that won't be uncovered and nothing hidden that won't be known. What I tell you in the dark, speak in the light. What you hear in a whisper, proclaim on the housetops. Do not fear those who kill the body but are, able, but are not able to kill the soul. Rather, fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. As I look through the gospel proclamations of the New Testament, so many in Acts, there's many more uh, beyond that. One resoundingly consistent feature I notice in the biblical presentations of the gospel that I'll admit are often missing from my own presentations of the gospel is the threat of judgment. More, probably more accurately, the warning of judgment. That it's coming. So this is why I believe introducing people to the Messiah and baptizing them into their a newfound allegiance in him is far more important as the mission of the church than giving someone a bologna sandwich because they're hungry. Hunger is important. It's just not as important because there is something worse than death. The judgment of an almighty, all-righteous, always-right God. And it will never be fashionable to teach or preach on that. Brothers and sisters, it must be part of our message. There's something worse than death. The other reason that this is the, the mission of the church is because there is something better than human flourishing. There's something better than wealth. There's something better than not being hungry. There's something better than a comfortable life. You get pictures of it throughout the Bible. But one of my favorites is from the book of Revelation. In chapter 7, the Apostle John says, After this I looked, and there was a vast multitude from every nation. Daniel 7, Matthew 28, virtually all of the book of Acts, Revelation 7. From every nation, a vast multitude. Every nation, tribe, people, and language, which no one could number, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. By the way, that one line is the ultimate fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. That you will have descendants that are as countless as the sand on the seashore, which no one could number standing before the throne and before the Lamb. Throne with a Lamb next to it, that sounds like the Ancient of Days handing over dominion and power to the Son of Man. It continues, it says, They were clothed in white robes, which always represent righteousness in the New Testament, as if they've been taught to obey the commands of Jesus. With palm branches in their hands, which typically represent Hosanna, save us, Lord. And they cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who is seated on the throne and to the Lamb. I'm telling you, there's something better than human flourishing. There is life eternal in the presence of the Lamb, kneeling before the throne. So you might ask, Ryan, are you saying that we 
We need to care about discipling people and baptizing people and teaching them at the expense of the good deeds of the hands and feet. Absolutely not. Because I think that part of teaching them to obey what I've commanded produces those who go out and serve and demonstrate compassion and care for the downtrodden. The Great Commission actually produces those who obey the greatest commandment. If you want to go after the ills of society, if you want to care for people, make more Christians. Matthew 22 They asked Jesus, Teacher, which command in the law is the greatest? And he said to them, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the greatest and most important command. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Someone needs a sandwich. Love your neighbor and give it to them. Where would you learn that? Someone taught me to obey the command to Jesus. And final reminder... We have a lot to do. The world is broken and in desperate need of a Savior, brothers and sisters. We have to preach the gospel. That is our mission. We have to preach the gospel. The world needs its Savior. But the world is also broken and in desperate need of justice and compassion. Preach the gospel, make disciples, baptize them, teach them to obey Jesus. And then live out your life as salt, as light, as hands and feet. Loving your neighbor as yourself. So in that sense, we fall into this long line where we too must strive to extend God's rule on earth, to steward his rule on his behalf, to make more little Christs. That's just what Christian means. It means little Christ. Make more little Christ in Genesis. One, the command is to go make more image bearers. In Matthew 28, the command is effectively make more Christ bearers. Love God and love neighbor all along the way. May we never separate the two. Our mission determines how we live in a broken society. It is a tall task, but maybe that's why Jesus closes his final words, as Brandon pointed out, with this promise. Remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. It would have been hard for people to know exactly what that meant, but then Pentecost happened. And they realize that Jesus is with us always to the end of the age. And then the gospel took off. And brothers and sisters, that's our task. That is what we do as believers. We keep our mission in front of us. We don't allow ourselves to drift to the left or to the right. We stay the course when it gets hard. It's only going to get harder. And we love God and neighbor all along the way.